Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white people about our role in resistance, in showing up, and in liberation? Our theme music, We Are Building Up a New World, is Dr. Vincent Harding's Song for the Freedom Movement, sung by a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado, in December 2014. It was led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. I am Reverend Jean Jeffress. I use she and they pronouns. I'm a pastor in the United Church of Christ in Northern California. I live in what is now called the city of Oakland, which exists on the unceded and ancestral lands of the Ohlone people who are still here living on and praying for this land. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith and is particularly designed for white people, white Christians, with the idea that us white folks, white Christian folks, will talk to other white folks about race and white supremacy. We believe that white people like me have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it, including in our own Christian tradition. We'd love to hear from you, and especially from people of color and listeners from different faith traditions who might be checking us out. Let us know how we're doing. The word is resistance. Today is a gray day day here in Oakland, California. I'm sitting in my living room surrounded by books and my two sleeping cats. I do love a gray day. It matches my mood and makes time with the cats seem that much more cozy. This gray day also helps me to contemplate our Eastertide theme, hashtag failure lab. Here at The Word is Resistance, we are looking at and talking about some of our shortcomings or failures, as it were, in racial justice and anti-oppression work. In progressive and movement circles, we're always trying to get it right. It's understandable. Nobody wants to be called out or canceled or lose credibility in their circle of influence. Thing is, if we can't get it wrong, if we're unable to have nuanced conversations, then we cannot learn and grow and get better at the work. In other words, we need to be able to talk about the times we got it wrong the times we didn't know better, and if we're humble, willing to learn and listen, then we can grow and do better and be better. Failure is a harsh word, but hashtag failure lab is much more catchy than hashtag learning from our fucking mistakes, which is, I pray, what we are all doing as we do this work. Today's passage is from the book of Acts, chapter 7, 55 through 60. It is a rather brutal scene depicting the stoning of Stephen, who is anachronistically called the first Christian martyr. Here is Acts 7, 55 through 60. 
But filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears and with a loud shout all rushed together against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he died, and Saul approved of their killing him. Stephen was someone in the early Jesus movement who was selected among other disciples and new followers to care for the Hebrew widows. We are told in previous verses that he did great wonders and signs, and that some other members of the synagogues lied about him to set him up as a blasphemer, something punishable by stoning. And so he is dragged before the Sanhedrin, where he proceeds to give a long speech illustrating how the prophets from their tradition had been persecuted right up to Jesus. Then then Stephen blamed this judging body, the Sanhedrin, of murdering Jesus. Well, they didn't like that. And also, just to be totally clear, they did not kill Jesus. Rome did. After the speech, Stephen dies in a hail of stones flung at him by the people who set him up. This text is a landmine for anti-Jewish interpretations, and while this episode is not focusing on that in particular, I did want to name it. Okay, I'll unpack it a little. Stephen was not rejecting Judaism. He was not a Christian. He was arguing from a specific expression of his faith tradition, which was the same tradition as those with whom he argued. It's like one Protestant arguing with members from another Protestant church, but one church is more powerful, so its members decide to commit an act of violence against the one with whom they are arguing. This does not seem very far-fetched in today's deeply polarized religious climate. So that's what happened to Stephen. But all the while, there, all the while there's this fella in the crowd named Saul. Saul didn't throw any stones, but it looks as though he watched everyone's coats while they hurled stones at Stephen. Saul didn't do the violence, but he facilitated it. And then, in the end of the passage, we are told Saul approved of them killing him. I think we all know that Saul, the coat-watching persecutor of Jesus' followers, became known as Paul. And that Paul, through a revelation with the resurrected Jesus, became known as the Apostle to the Gentiles, spreading the Jesus movement and helping Jesus-following communities until his death in 64 BCE, thereabouts. Paul did not get canceled, not even, but perhaps Paul would tell this story on his Failure Lab episode if he were here today. Paul did not found the Christian church, as there was no Christianity then, but Paul had a relationship with and a love for those early churches. I also have a relationship and a love for the church, And the capital C church is so deeply filled up to its eyeballs with hashtag failure when it comes to anti-oppression work.
A young person I encountered in a church setting not long ago named that, at least here in the U.S., we have allowed the worst aspects of our Christian tradition to have the loudest voices. A teenager said this. What swirls around in my head pretty much all the time is the wave of anti-trans legislation spreading across our country. It's on my mind because it affects many of my friends, plus it's fucking terrifying and fascist as fuck. And it's all wrapped up in Christian-patterned wrapping paper. Florida, with its statewide bathroom ban, exerting control over university curricula, and plunging into medical records. Missouri, trying to impose outrageous restrictions on gender-affirming medical care. Last I checked, a judge was blocking that law, but nonetheless, it is here. And there is so, so, so much more all across the country. I cannot keep up with the over 300 bills and measures passing and in process. I know they are all over, so forgive me that I do not name them all. I was at a gathering of trans and non-binary people a while back. I only knew one person, so in the process of meeting others, the question, so what do you do, came up. I'm a pastor, I said. Oh, was the response. I live in a bubble of queer pastors and churchgoers, but I think many queer and trans people, with good reason, have a healthy suspicion of the church. So for better or for worse, I sort of feel like worse, I brought up my denomination's love letters to trans youth campaign that they did on Trans Visibility Day. I showed, a, I showed the webpage from my phone. Somebody said, with the stiltedness of disappointed surprise, well, I guess that's better than nothing. I tried to launch into how it's good that a church is making this statement and it helps trans kids in the church know that our church will not reject them. And that's true. And it is good in its context. Very good. But I failed in that moment to truly understand my privilege. I identify as non-binary, but it's also authentic for me to be she. I like using both pronouns interchangeably because it expresses my belief that gender really is fluid. But it gives me privilege as well. It's like when white people can put themselves out there and take risks for racial justice. But when we want to, if we want to, at any time, we can just go back to being white. I can just go back to being she. So my little churchy love notes don't necessarily mean a lot to people who are living under constant existential threat. Constant and real. And then there is the church itself, whose potential I am so desperately in love with, but who can also be so very disappointing. I wonder sometimes, sort of jokingly, sort of not, if my relationship with the church is codependent, as I am ever waiting for the church to change, and it does not, and I go back anyway. In my denomination, the United Church of Christ, when a church is open and affirming, that means the church is intentionally welcoming LGBTQ people. There is a process churches go through to become open and affirming. A church where I served went through that process and said they were open and affirming. Yet when it came time to talk about putting banners up at the church, someone said, we can't put a rainbow banner up because people will think we are a gay church. This was in the context of a meeting about being welcoming. As the only gay person in that, me in that meeting, 
and with no real ally with me, I did not know what to say. I argued the open and affirming point, and that argument went nowhere because the meaning was not understood in the first place. I was trying to figure out if I was supposed to be being pastoral in that moment. Many more people will think we are gay, we are a gay church type things were said. And this was new for me. I came to church and to seminary later in life and had the great privilege of my faith life unfolding in queer spaces. Not knowing what to do, I excused myself from the meeting to take a phone call, and in the end, I said nothing. I'm still not sure if the hashtag failure in that situation was mine because I said nothing, or if the fact, or if maybe it's the fact that UCC congregations employ their pastors, they are the employer of their pastors. I wasn't ready to lose my job. I didn't know what to do. Perhaps I can just blame capitalism. But the church is so disappointing at times. In any case, I do love the church. I am in love with the vision of church from Acts 2, 44 through 47, which says, All who believed were together and had all, had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all, as any had need. Day by day, they had spent much time together in the temple. They broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having good will of all the people. Now throw in and all were willing to reflect and learn on from their mistakes, and that is a still life of the church I yearn for. But churches are made of people, and people don't always want to reflect. And I have enough experience of congregations saying they want to do racial justice work, but then when that work requires self-reflection, understanding of our own sociocultural location, understanding of how we are complicit and benefit from systems of white supremacy, people drop out of the classes or say it's political or they can't understand why we're not talking about the issues. Well, one of the issues, or many, some of these issues are that we don't want to be wrong. We don't want to do or say the wrong thing or acknowledge that we have privilege when we do or understand and accept that because of our privilege, just our very presence in certain contexts may cause uneasiness for some. We have to learn to be okay with that. And if we can learn to be okay with that, then maybe, just maybe, we will do or say the wrong thing a little less often. Because shorthand for all of that is humility. And with humility we can fail much more gracefully. Amen. My call to action this week is to give to organizations that support transgender people. I've got some links in the resource section of the transcript for the Trevor Project, the Black Trans Advocacy Coalition, and a couple of other organizations. And for those of you who are church folks, 
There is a Trans Action Day hosted by the Northern California Nevada Conference of the United Church of Christ. It is an online event on May 20th with speakers, panels, and a worship service. I will put all of that information and how to register for it, how to attend it. If you like, all of it will be in the transcript. Thank you so much for joining me from wherever you are in this world today. Let us know how your action goes. If you do an action, we'd love to hear from all of you by commenting on our SoundCloud, Twitter, or Facebook pages. Tune in for a resistance word next week from Reverend Liz Kearney. You can find out more about Surge at Surge.org, and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. We're also on Spotify. Give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Transcripts are available as well on our website, which includes references, resources, and action links. And finally, a huge thanks, as always, to our sound editor this week, Claire Hitchens. Thank you, Claire. Blessings to all of you in all that you do. Love and liberation to you all. Go in peace. Until next time, I'm Jean Jeffress.